The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Galatians 2, and we're going to start in verse 16. This will be our final week uh, in our series, Who Are You? And uh, we've, been learning, uh, we've been learning about how important it is for our identity to be found in Christ. And uh, we've been continually pushing ourselves to contemplate how we would answer if someone were to ask this question. If they were to say to you, who are you? But then quickly said, don't tell me your name. If they said, who are you? But you can't, part of your answer can't be, you know, that's our standard response if somebody was to ask that question, but they don't want to hear what your name is. That's going to force you then to think about what is the next most prominent characteristic that defines me? What is the next biggest part of my identity that I would tell this person? And every single human being's identity hinges on their relationship to one single person, and his name is Jesus. If you put faith in the finished work of Christ, then John 1.12 says you are a child of God. And then the rest of who you are builds off the bedrock of this truth. If someone has yet to put trust in Jesus and receive the free gift of salvation, then the Bible says they are not yet God's child, and they are left to build their life upon the shifting sands of lesser things. The importance of having our identity flow from the person and work of Jesus cannot be overstated. Who you are will always affect what you do. Who you are will always affect what you do. We're going to read Galatians 2. I'm going to start in verse 16, and we'll go down to verse 21. It says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Thankful that's true. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We're going to key in tonight on what verse 20 reveals to us. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's some big stuff. Let's work through it. The unfortunate reality is that even many who are children of God, right, many who have put faith in the finished work of Christ, they do not live in the joy and beauty of a Christ-centered identity. When who we are is built upon something other than the unchanging relationship we have with Christ, the outcome is tragic 100% of the time. God the Father is eternal and immutable, and your identity as his child never has to change. Every other thing in this life can 
and probably will change. And this is why determining who you are based on any of these other things will always lead to pain. Many people would answer the question, who are you? If they couldn't use their name, the next thing that would most prominently describe them would be something to do with their profession or their career. So you may ask someone, who are you? They might say, well, I'm a salesman. Somebody might say, I'm a professor. Or somebody might say, I'm an electrician. Here's the problem with that. I know a guy that worked at the coal plant in Hamilton for decades, making electricity, and he just recently retired. I don't know all the details if part of it was forced or it was all him, but the bottom line is he's now not doing that thing he's done for decades. And if his identity was his occupation, where would he be today? Who would he be today? Many people would say when asked this question, I'm a mom or I'm a dad. The sense of joy and duty they have towards their kids causes them to find their primary identity in relationship to them. The sad truth in this world that is not yet as it should be is that sometimes parents bury their children instead of the other way around. Sometimes children rebel and don't return. And minimally, they grow up and the relationship and the level of dependence changes. Now, of course, we always love our children, and we, we are still going to be parents, even if any of the things I just mentioned were to happen. But if our identity and fulfillment is centered in parenting, instead of our unchanging Savior, we are set up to be crushed and left with confusion about our purpose. Many, when asked this question, might say, I'm a husband, or I'm a wife. But what if your spouse dies early? If who you are is defined by who you are married to, then what are you left with in that situation? The options for false and fickle first identities are almost innumerable. You could say, I'm a student, or I'm a teacher. You could say, I'm a loner, or I'm popular. I'm a winner, I'm a loser, I'm an athlete, I'm a nerd. The truth is that all of these things can and will most likely change. Or at the very least, they fall way short of providing you the joy and fulfillment and peace that comes from knowing and living in light of who you are in Christ. Many people spend their life searching for who they are, and continually they're reinventing themselves. Because each new attempt at building a life on something other than Jesus washes out from under them immediately when the storms of life come. The beautiful invitation from Father God is for who we are to flow out of who He is. As children of God, we are like Christ. If you like titles, we just got to it. As children of God, we are like Christ. The very term Christian, which was given to us first in Acts 11, it was given to the church there at Antioch, the first time we see uh, those that follow Jesus being called Christians, that very word, that very title should prompt us to constantly contemplate our connection with Christ in relation to who we are and our identity. Uh, second, so I'm going to read you a few scriptures in light of that idea, that the fact that we're Christians means that we're connected to Jesus and our identity should flow from that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin 
If you've been sad thus far today or, or struggling to have something to be thankful for, listen to this right here. This will get you happy. God made him who had no sin. Who's that? Okay, three of you know. God made him who had no sin. Who's that? Jesus. That's the one. That's him. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What was just described there, man? You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like we are identity thieves that have permission. I mean, think about it. What do identity thieves do? They go find somebody whose identity they like better than theirs for whatever reason. They're of a higher financial status. They got a better credit score. Whatever it is, somebody wants something that that person has because they're in a higher station, right? Here, here's, here's what the scriptures tell us right there. Jesus did what was required so that we could jump in and partake of, of the, the victory and the price that was paid, right? So Jesus comes, does what he does, lives a perfect life, does what we couldn't, died in our place for our sins, secures for us the, righteous, the, the title of the possibility to be called the righteousness of God. Because here's what it says. This is, I, don't, I don't know if we hear it all the time. It says, it made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? That God views us as his righteousness. That is not a term I deserve. Am I alone in the room? I do not not deserve to be called the righteousness of God. Why? Did you do something bad in your life? Brother, sister, I did something bad in the last hour. Okay? I do not deserve that title. So what is this? This is just like God gave me permission to hack Jesus' credit report and and just take everything good that he's done. He's done a great job. He's paid all his bills. I've wrecked mine, right? Late payments everywhere, a bunch of red ink on my credit report. Jesus, his is perfect. And for whatever reason, God somehow sees this as just. Jesus, you did all the right things, so you've got what everybody wants and what everybody needs. They've all screwed it up. But since we love them, you're going to do something that means they can come in and join in on yours. I love y'all, but if you've jacked up your credit score, I'm not letting you borrow mine. <laughs> Sorry. You will not have the credit score of Vince Marquis, partly because it's illegal. But anyways, the bottom line is, uh, this, when, when, people, when people act like anything God does is not fair, like, yeah, you're right. It's not fair, but, but not the way you're thinking. <laughs> Most of what he does, as far as we judge fairness, doesn't seem fair to him. Jesus pays the price. Jesus does what is necessary. Jesus makes a way. And then we get to ride on his coattails and be called the righteousness of God. If you haven't been excited about Jesus lately, you ought to get excited right about that right there. Amen. I'm thankful that's true. I'm a a sanctioned by God identity thief, and I'm happy about it. Let me read you another verse. Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What does that tell us? God is in the business of making us like Christ. He is actively shaping and molding. He's adding to us and taking away as he sees fit with the end goal of us being more like Jesus. That's really encouraging to me because it helps me know a couple things. One, It helps me know that God's not going to give up on me. It helps me know that I'm in process. It helps me know that he's not done yet. And it helps helps me to know the goal. And sometimes sometimes we get confused and kind of stuck in a rut in this life because we don't know what the goal is. Well, here, let me set one up for you. Let me know one of the things God has intended for your life if you're a Christian today. He's working on making you more like Jesus. 
And I can jump in and be a part of that all day long. Maybe everything else seems like it's not going right, but here's what I know. Even in the midst of all those things that seem broken and busted, I know God's working on me with the end goal of me ending up looking more like Jesus. And so my identity can be shaped in that, not by what I see, to the point that Miss Connie made earlier. We don't live by sight. We live by faith. And sometimes, some of you right now, I know you're looking around at your life, and you're like, I don't see a lot of evidence of this me becoming more like Christ, because I know my own thoughts. I know my own actions. I know the kind of stuff I'm doing, or the kind of stuff I wish I was doing, and I, it doesn't really seem like things are going well as far as the me becoming like Jesus situation. Well, here's what I want to say. Ultimately, uh, first of all, this says that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So, first of all, I'm glad that some of this is out of your hands and out of my hands because God's bigger and stronger and his love for you is going to conquer even your own foolishness. Praise God for that. You happy about that? Or are you just mad because I inferred a little bit that you might have some foolishness in your life? Well, humble yourself, okay? Because you do. All right. Let's read another scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. You're going to like this one if you didn't like the last one. But we all, with unveiled face, talk about not wearing a mask. Don't cover up. You don't need to run and hide because of, of the next thing he's going to say. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. First of all, we have often talked of the Word of God as a mirror like Pastor James does in the book of James, right? We, this mirror analogy in accordance with the Scriptures is not uncommon, and it's, it's said in other places, but there's, there's something different happening here. So in, in the book of James, he says that we look, we look into the Word and we see where our reflection doesn't line up, right? That we can use the, the Scriptures as, as a mirror to kind of to judge ourselves and then repent accordingly, right? Because if, I'll, I'll just give you a practical example, right? So the Word of God says that you should love your neighbor, and since you love your neighbor, you should not steal from them, right? So let's say you're in your morning time reading the Bible, because I know you guys are all getting up in the morning. First thing, I mean, the, the phone is shut off. You're reaching for the Scriptures because you're desperate for a drink from the living water of the Scriptures, right? That's, that's what everyone's doing, right? Yeah. Woo, okay, good. Um, so... Whenever you do it during the day, that's okay. It doesn't have to be in the morning. Uh, you're, you're, you're in the scriptures and you see, you come across those verses, right? You're, you're somewhere. You're in Romans 13. You're in Mark 12. Or you're somewhere, 1 Peter, where, where it's told that, you know, you, above all else, man, you gotta, you got to love people. And, and, and you see and you understand, well, what that means is if I love them, I'm not going to talk bad about them. I'm not going to gossip about them. I'm definitely not going to steal from them if I love them. And so you're, you're processing all that. And then, and then you remember, Right? You've still got your neighbor's hedge clippers that you borrowed two springs ago, and you just were hoping that he forgot about it, right? And so in that, you've kind of not loved him well. Who knows? He may have gone and already bought new hedge clippers because of your lying self. Uh, so you, you find yourself realizing, okay, I've not loved him well. And, and so the, the Word of God there has acted as a mirror, it's shown you that your actions did not line up with the requirements of the gospel, right? That what grace should be bearing out in you is not actually what you're seeing. And so what that does, that's a beautiful thing. It allows us to then look into that reflection, repent, right? So you can trudge out to the shed, go get the hedge clippers, right? Take a plate of cookies over there or celery sticks if they're living that gluten-free lifestyle, whatever it is. And, and you go over there, and you know you have a really well-thought-out apology note, and, and you apologize for, for your sinful attitude. The Word of God 
just brought correction because it acted as a mirror for you. And so the Bible does do that, and in that way it is a mirror. But this is talking about something a little different. Um, This talks of the word as a mirror in a different way. Let me point this out to you. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face. So we're, we're looking into the mirror, and it's saying that beholding in this mirror, we see the glory of the Lord. It's our face unveiled, looking into it, and what's looking back at us is the glory of the Lord. What does this mean? It means reality is often different than we believe. If we can look into the mirror of the word and see the glory of God, then what that stops us from doing is believing some of the lies that we often do. Because it's, it's showing us that it, what's looking back at us is the glory of God. What's speaking to us is the way God sees us, right? Because a lot of times you could be looking into the mirror of the word or just looking in the mirror in your bathroom, and what you're not seeing looking back at you is the righteousness of God. Amen? Anybody else ever been in that situation? Yes. Amen. Sometimes you're not seeing somebody that is uh, of incredible importance to Father God, the creator of all. Sometimes there's other things that are coming in and dictating to you what you're seeing in that reflection. But, but what Corinthians is saying here in, in chapter 3 is that with unveiled face, with all the masks set down, we can stare into these scriptures and what will reflect back at us, us, we with unveiled face, is the glory of the Lord. How beautiful is that? And that means that we can't believe lies like, for example, I'm a loser. People have thought that before. People have said that to me before. Here's here's why you can't believe that based on this scripture. Here's what the Bible says. The overall narrative of the Bible tells us this, that Jesus wins every single time. And Galatians 2 said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Is that what Galatians 2 said? 2 Corinthians said, 2 Corinthians 3 said, I'm looking with unveiled face into this mirror, and what's reflecting back at me is the glory of the Lord. Galatians 2 said, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so, can you, belonging to Jesus, being on team Jesus, can you be a loser? There's only one way, and, and I beg your pardon on this, but you're going to have to call the Jesus in you a loser to believe that lie. And I know you might be big and bad, But I'm not sure you're so big and bad enough that you're going to be throwing insults like you're a loser at King Jesus. Right? I'm not taking that option ever. So, you know, and here you might might challenge me, and that's fine. Um, You might say to me, what do you mean Jesus wins every time? He got murdered, didn't he? And I would say to you, yes, he did. But he was winning then, too. Because that was the plan. Because before the foundations of the world, God Almighty, sovereign Lord and creator of everything, already knew how that was going to go. He already knew that mankind was going to fall. He already knew there was going to be a problem that needed to be fixed, that sin was going to separate mankind from God. He already knew that Jesus was going to have to come. He already knew that he was going to live a perfect life in our place. He already knew he was going to step in, shed his blood to purchase us away from sin and death. And he already knew he was going to rise from the grave. So he won then too. Jesus isn't in the business of losing. And what we see because of our connection to Christ is that our identity has to change. You can't keep looking in a mirror and saying, I'm a loser. If Christ is in you, it's not you any longer that lives, but him. And so where does that place you? It places you on a winning team, so stop saying that. Amen. Unless you're willing to call Jesus a loser, which I wouldn't suggest. Because he's not. He wins all the time. 
Somebody asked me the other day how our trip to Mexico was, and uh, my answer to them was, it, it was hard, but Jesus won for sure. And they said, because they're a good theologian, they kind of questioned me. They're like, well, doesn't he always win? And I said, yeah, he does. But sometimes you just can't tell right away. <laughs> sometimes in the situation, like when we got done in Mexico, we got to the end of it, it was very obvious Jesus won. It was very obvious there was tribulation. It was very obvious there was opposition in what we were trying to do. And it was very obvious by the end of it, King Jesus won. And we were on that team. So we were really thankful for that. But there's been times in my life where I know because the Bible says so that Jesus can't be losing, but it don't look that way. Anybody else ever been there? Anybody else ever looked around at life and it not looked so much like Team Jesus was winning? Yeah. It happens all the time. I mean, if, if you're down at the you know, macro level of your life and you don't see that on, on a day-to-day -day basis, just span out a little bit. The world looks jacked up. Things are not as they should be. There's a whole lot of places where someone could point and say, well, it doesn't look like God's winning there. Well, I beg your pardon. He is always winning. It just doesn't always look like it. We aren't always able to perceive where it is the triumph is happening. It was like that for the apostles on the day Jesus died, wasn't it? I mean, that, that was a rough day. And they could only see things through the limited vision that they had. They're looking at the guy they thought was going to come overthrow the oppressors who had stepped on their necks for as long as they could remember. And, and they saw those guys kill the guy they thought was going to win everything for them. And what did they do? They scattered. But thank God the story wasn't over. Three days later, he rose. Several days more, they're in a room together and the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them for mission and then every single one of them goes to their death preaching the resurrected Christ and the beautiful gospel. Amen. Sometimes you can't tell that Jesus is winning. And you get, so you've got to quit believing that you're a losing loser. If it, is, if it is no longer you that lives but Christ in you, then you are winning, even if you can't tell yet. And I don't want you to get it twisted because what I'm saying to you is a lot different than someone standing up here telling you, because of Jesus, you're always going to win, right? There's, there's a difference because sometimes what people mean when they say that is that Jesus is your sugar daddy and faith is the debit card to get into his account, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I'm saying that very obviously sometimes it won't be obvious from your perception that Jesus is winning, <laughs> But I'm telling you, he always is. And I'm telling you that, that that understanding is what allows us to persevere by faith through those difficult times. We trust that God is working in all those things. See, Romans 8.29, some, some of that's going on in those hard times. And we gotta, we got to rejoice in that. You remember that? That he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Some of that shaping and conforming, that adding and subtracting, that, 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 that forming that God is doing, much of that is happening when you're sitting in the midst of a situation where it's not so obvious from your vantage point that Team Jesus is winning, what's going to happen then? Are you going to trust him then? Is faith going to carry you through then? Are you going to believe his promises then? Amen. If our identity is in Christ, it changes our view of winning. Here's the reality, guys. We don't have to be rich or comfortable or even healthy to be winning. You believe that? I'll say it again just in case you don't. That way you can get extra mad. We don't have to be rich or comfortable or even healthy to be winning. 
Here's what we need. We just have to be accomplishing the mission the Lord Jesus gave us, which is to love him and to love others enough to tell them about him. What do you need to be winning in this life? You need to be doing exactly what God put you on this earth to do. And if a part of that story is you enduring through suffering and in so doing becoming a a sharpened and and better tool in the hand of our master, praise God for that because he's going to sustain you through. Amen. The ability to persevere by God's grace is a beautiful gift. Now, we need to say that there is, of course, a limit to our Christ-likeness, right? There are offshoot heresies and cults that get this a little bit wrong. They take verses that talk about us being like Christ, and they take it too far. So we need to say that, first of all, we are not perfect, but instead we are in a process towards it, right? So I'm giving you some ways we're not completely like Christ. We're not perfect. We're in process. We are not now and never will be a part of the Trinitarian Godhead, right? Some religions believe that what we're on is a path towards godness. We will never be God, okay? Uh, and, and we don't, in order for it to be true, we don't have to become a God someday for what the scriptures say about us being like Christ to be true. Uh, a third way that we're not necessarily just like Jesus is that we probably won't be walking up to people while they're at work and saying something like, come follow me, and see them drop everything they're doing at that very moment to come and be our disciples, okay? Maybe, I mean, there's no strict scriptural prohibition to that happening, but um, probably not, right? But if you do, call me, and, and we'll figure out how to get you to write a book because people will read it, okay? Um, the Bible does tell us clearly that God is conforming us to the image of Christ, and that in this process, we can look into the mirror of the word and see where much of the character and nature of King Jesus becomes our character and nature. That's what the Bible says when it means we're Christ-like. You're not going to be God. You're not going to be perfect. But we can be like him, and we can be in the process of sanctification, the loving process that God draws us through of becoming more and more like Christ. And so I want to give you three ways that we are like Christ if we belong to him. First of all, we can love like Jesus loves. We can speak like Jesus speaks. And we can serve like Jesus serves. Let me read you this verse. First of all, we can love like Jesus loves. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15 says this. For the love of Christ controls us. That's the New American Standard Version. Some of your... uh, Some of your versions will say, for the love of Christ compels us. I like that. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Do you see that direct correlation between what Jesus did and what then it should cause us to do? He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So apparently, Pastor Paul thinks, if you understand the gospel, if you know that Jesus died for you, if you understand the gravity of the great exchange that happened, where he took the wrath of God in your place, where he took the sin uh, that, that all of us had committed, that he stepped in and paid the price, if you grasp that, then the automatic result should be, we no longer live for ourselves. 
I'm not so much concerned about my comfort. I'm not so much concerned about what I like, what I want to do, what my agenda is, what my plan is, what's on my calendar. What I'm very concerned with is what it is he who died for me and then rose again would have me to do. It becomes all about that. And so that changes stuff. And that begins to melt down all those idolatrous, um, idol um, identity issues that we tend to, to build up. All of those first false identities that come in that, that try to set themselves up in pl- a place higher than the fact that we are connected to Christ and thus children of God. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. We have the potential to love selflessly and unconditionally just like Jesus has loved us. We can only understand what love really is in light of the cross of Christ. We know that from 1 John 3.16. We know that the only shot we have as humans of finite understanding, groping for an understanding of something so deep and wide and beautiful as love, first of all, that it comes from God and its greatest expression is laid out for us in 1 John 3.16. We see the greatest expression of love in all of history that ever has been or ever will be at the cross of Christ. That's where we begin to try to gain understanding of what we're even talking about when we understand that God loves us and we're called to love him and others. The reality is that though we can love selflessly and unconditionally like Jesus, we will not do that perfectly because we still struggle and strain against the stain of sin. But we can live in such a way that more often than not, we are reflecting the pure and precious love of God to those that we come in contact with. Praise God. We won't do it perfectly. You're going to have a day where priorities invert and you're more concerned about your immediate need, your immediate desire, your immediate want than you are somebody else's. There's not really a chance, according to the scriptures, of us attaining perfection in this life and loving uh, in in a perfect way the way Jesus has loved us. But here's, here's, I think, the goal we should at least set. Because I think oftentimes we hear that. We understand that perfection will not be grabbed a hold of in this life. And and so what that allows us to do, we think in our minds, is shift into neutral and say, well, I'm not perfect. Eh, I I think we should try harder than that. (laughs) Right? It's going to take God's grace to do any of it. So let's, let's, let's make that very, very clear. But we should at least shoot high, right? We should at least, when we pray and ask for the help of God's grace and the Holy Spirit, that, that more often than not... I would live a selfless, sacrificial life. That more often than not, I'd be more concerned about what you need than what I need. That more often than not, I am reflecting the love that God gave me to those that I come in contact with. I think we should at least shoot for more often than not. Amen. We can, if we belong to him, um, we are like Christ in several ways. One is that we can love like Jesus loves. The second is that we can speak like Jesus speaks. When you know who you are in Christ, you can speak into situations with the wisdom of the Word of God and with authority. Many people are confused and struggling, and they want somebody to tell them something more than, well, just just look inside yourself. You have to figure out what's true for you. Guys, that's not an answer to anything. That's complete garbage. That's not helpful. Jesus spoke and taught with authority. Going to the scriptures, part of what caught people's attention when Jesus spoke, people were like, he's talking with authority. He doesn't teach like the scribes. He, he's speaking as if um, there's some authority behind what he's saying. And 
because it's no longer we who live, but Christ that lives in us, we can live and walk and speak with that kind of authority. Not to the same degree as Jesus, but more than we are in most cases. Jesus spoke and taught with authority, yet he was still able to be incredibly humble. Jesus spoke and taught with authority, yet he was still able to be incredibly humble. That tells us that this is possible, but we should say that it's obviously going to be very difficult because most of the time we see those things as divided and really unable to exist together. To be somebody that walks with the authority of, of, of having the life of Christ inside of them and having the backing of the, the truth of the word of God, most of the time we don't see somebody that's willing to walk in authority as also being able to be humble. But apparently it's, it's not as much of a contradiction as we believe because Jesus walked both out in perfection. And so are you going to do that naturally and of your own strength? No. You'll either be, you know, humble or falsely humble and fairly silent, typically, or you'll talk with a bunch of authority and half the time, you know, won't really know what you're talking about anyways and kind of be a punk, right? So, but with the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, all of that can go away. We can talk with the authority that Christ does about the scriptures and about the issues of life because he lives in us, because the Holy Spirit will speak through us. We can be vessels and mouthpieces used by God for the spreading of the gospel and for the helping of people. And at the very same time, here's how we can be both humble and authoritative. We can be authoritative because it's Christ in us, and we can be humble because it's Christ in us. You see that? All glory goes to him. And anytime somebody's impressed with the authoritative or wise way that you talk, you'd be quick to reflect. Here, let me, let me help you with something. It's not because I'm great, because I'm not. It's because he who lives in me is great. We can have authority and be humble because of who lives in us and who is working through us. Very thankful for that. Knowing who you are is incredibly important. Let me read you this kind of wild story of mistaken identity. In the early 1930s, America's most wanted fugitive was undoubtedly John Dillinger. He had robbed over two dozen banks, and this situation had caused a major headache for a 25-year-old named Ralph Alsman. He was a law-abiding citizen from Brookville, Indiana, and he was practically John Dillinger's identical twin. As if the physical resemblance wasn't enough, both Alsman and Dillinger had a mole next to one eye and a scar on the left wrist. It's, it's bad luck for this guy, right? <laughs> Not only do you look just like this criminal, but you've got the same beauty mark and the same scar. It's almost uncanny. Since Brookville was only 87 kilometers from Dillinger's hometown of Mooresville, Alsman was easily mistaken for the infamous outlaw. In fact, Alsman was mistaken for Dillinger so often that he was arrested 17 times. Even when Alsman left his home state, he was still arrested in such cities as Detroit and Minneapolis. Although he was always released, Alsman often had to undergo stressful interrogation sessions to convince authorities that he wasn't Dillinger. Worst of all, Alsman was also shot 11 times and became justifiably paranoid that a law enforcement officer would kill him before he had the chance to prove his real identity. I realize you couldn't just order t-shirts on the internet at that point, but I think I would have had someone make me one that said, I'm not Dillinger, right? Or seven, one for each day of the week. This guy had it rough. 
Uh, Alsman's ordeal finally came to an end when Dillinger was gunned down by federal agents on July 22, 1934. Because of his resemblance to Dillinger, Alsman was offered movie contracts, but he chose to end his 15 minutes of fame and turn them down. Here's my question to you. What if Alsman, the guy that looked a lot like Dillinger, what if he was shaky about who he was? Interrogators oftentimes, I don't know if you've watched movies or know this to be true, but it is. Interrogators oftentimes get false confessions because they are really good at applying mental pressure to people until they crack. Here's the reality. Your enemy, the devil, is skilled at the very same tactics. And if you are not anchored and confident in who you are in Christ, the devil's going to get you to believe lies about yourself, and he'll be getting false confessions out of you constantly. He'll get you to say stuff like, I'm a loser. He'll get you to say stuff like, I'm worthless. He'll get you to say stuff like, there's no way God could love me. He'll get you to say stuff like, I'm hopeless. Because the incredible mental pressure that continues to come from all angles, if you are not anchored squarely in who you are in Christ. I mean, think about it. This guy was arrested 17 times. That's 17 times underneath that, the lamp of the interrogators, them doing good cop, bad cop. Them, who knows how far they pushed him to try to, because these guys thought he was Dillinger. And oftentimes, interrogators will do stuff to get you to say what they want you to say. Satan will work on you just as hard or harder. And if you aren't convinced about who you are in Christ, you might crack under that mental pressure. And you might start saying stuff that isn't true. You might start believing stuff that isn't true. Don't do that. And how do, how, how do we not? Well, we spend enough time in the scriptures. We spend enough time in prayer. We spend enough time in God's presence to be very, very rooted and anchored in Christ, the cornerstone, the bedrock of our faith, to understand what the truth of the gospel means for us and how it affects our identity. We don't buy the lies. doesn't matter how many times someone repeats those to us. We're not taking it. I'm not giving a false confession. I'm sticking with what Jesus and his word says about me. Amen. I'm thankful I can. When you're tempted to say that you're a loser, you fire back with authority that because of Christ in you, you are going to win, even if it don't look like it. When you're tempted to say you're worthless, you fire back with authority that Jesus is no fool, and he paid the highest price ever for you. He paid for you with his own blood. And by the way, it's normally the creator of something that gets to determine its price, not some critic. We can stand in confidence and speak with authority every single thing the Bible says about us. And where we fall short of the character of our perfect Savior, we know God is in the process of conforming us to his image. If we believe these things all the way down to the core of who we are, it makes us almost impermeable to the attacks of the enemy, to that interrogator, that accuser of the brethren that comes constantly to try to get you to believe and say something, to act in a way contrary to what God says about you in his word. Let's not fall prey to that. The third way that we are like Christ is that we can serve like Jesus serves. Jesus walked with this beautiful coalescing of two seemingly incompatible characteristics. He was the Messiah. He was the worker of miracles. He was the Savior King. He's God in the flesh. And yet he did not come to be served, but to serve. 
So Jesus is simultaneously the most important person ever, and at the very same time, he's the most humble person ever. Jesus is like no other king ever. Instead of demanding to be served by his people, he serves them instead. Instead of expecting his people to give their lives for him, he gives his life for his people in the ultimate act of sacrificial service. We have to live in light of this. Philippians 2 says this, that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, and here's why. Grab this. Because he considered all of us to be more important than himself. That doesn't even sound right. If Jesus, who is the highest in importance, made himself the lowest on our behalf, we are left with no option but to joyfully join our king in an attitude of humility and service towards every other person. Do you see, that, do you see how what Jesus did erases every loophole we could possibly try to jump through? He is, he is highest of importance, takes himself lowest. That leaves us no room in the middle. We don't get to consider ourselves more important than anyone. We don't get to consider ourselves above serving anyone because he that was greatest, he that was of most importance, he that was there when the world was created, he that exists outside of time, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the miracle worker, God himself brought himself low, considered himself lower than you and me and sacrificing himself so that we could know life, so that we could have forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That leaves us no option. I don't get to look at anybody and consider myself more important than them. If Jesus looked at me and considered me more important than him. Do you see that? I've got no option. I have to think of you as more important than me. Because Jesus did that for me, because he's the one I'm following, because he said himself that students, eventually, they're going to become like their teacher. I'm trying to learn the lesson that he taught and that he's continually teaching, that he's leading me through, that I'm not as important as I think I am, that I need to bring myself low, but at the same time understand that humility is not so much, it's not so much thinking less of myself, but it's, it's a whole lot about just thinking of myself less and thinking of you more and thinking of others more. And being highly considerate of their needs. Really, it it just comes down to to loving them. Because Jesus showed us that this is really what love looks like. To serve other people. To care about their needs. And this is the way we reflect the glory of Christ to the world. We have to be humble because he was humble. It leaves us no option. I'm thankful for his example. If Christians were known more for this today than many of the other things that we're known for, the world would look a whole lot different. The humble and beautiful love of Christ is an ever-burning flame, and it is just waiting for some dry tinder to ignite. If each of us today would decide to go first, go first, just like Jesus did. He didn't wait for you and me to get it right. He didn't wait for us to stop being sinners. He didn't wait for us to come and seek him. He didn't wait for us to do all the things that would earn his affection or his sacrifice in our place for our sins. He didn't wait. What did he do? He he went ahead and went first because he knew we were never coming. (laughs) He knew we weren't going to ever do what was required. And so he set that in his example as well. Don't sit there and wait for someone else. Don't wait for someone else to convince you they're going to reciprocate when you humbly serve them. You just go on ahead and go. 
You serve first. You be humble first. You live in light of the love of Christ first. And if that would happen, the world could be set ablaze with the love of God. And it's so easy for us to hear that and look around the room and wait for somebody to go first. If you belong to Jesus, just follow him. He went first. There you go. There's your person. Somebody went. Now let's go. Let's follow him. Right? Just like in a room like this, if I said, hey, hey, who's got a testimony? Somebody jump up right now. What's everyone going to do? Ooh, hope someone goes first. It's awkward going first. Right? That's human nature. I don't know why. It frustrates me. So we should all be super excited about doing the right thing all the time. But we're not. Oftentimes we want to see somebody go first and then we'll jump in behind. Right? Well, Jesus did. So what are we, what are we waiting for? Let's be humble. Let's serve. Let's love. Let's do it with reckless abandon, just like Jesus did. Apparently not so concerned with what that meant for him and the outcome. Let's be humble, radically humble. Let's be a whole lot less focused on what it is we think we need, knowing that God is going to provide our needs if we'll pour ourselves out for the needs of others. Let's set the world ablaze with the love of Christ. That's, that's, what's, that's the, the issue. Why, why is everything around us crumbling? Why does it seem like anything God would say about anything is totally disregarded in our culture today when decisions are made? Why does it seem that way? Well, I think there's a, probably a lot of reasons, but one of them has to be that we're known a whole lot more for other things than this kind of radical, love-motivated humility. And, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, let's go first. Somebody go. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's set our social circles on ablaze with the love of Christ. Those people at work that annoy you, man, serve them. Serve them. Stop talking bad about them when they're not there. Serve them. Love them. Figure out how to show them what Jesus did for you. Because when you were still his enemy, he did what he did for you. That leaves us no option. Stop waiting. Guys, if he would have waited for us to get right before he went, where would that leave us? We wouldn't be here today. We'd be moping about in the darkness of being lost and away from him. But thank God Jesus went first. And all we have to do is follow him. And we can see from his example that, that the plan of God will not be undone. That even when it looked like to those that were there that, that everything was falling apart, we know that that's not what was happening. That yes, he died. Yes, he bled out on that cross. Yes, they wrapped him in burial linens. And yes, they put him in a tomb. And they thought it was over. From their perspective, it didn't look like Jesus' humble, loving sacrifice did anything. But it did. It accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. And even though they couldn't tell in the moment, Jesus was winning. Will you trust that God will do the same for you? He's winning, guys. He's going to. Team Jesus is going to win. And I'm just thankful. I'm thankful I can bank on that. Because I'll be honest with you, there's a whole lot of things that I look around at, and it doesn't, it doesn't look like it. But I'm thankful this word trumps what I see. I'm thankful we walk by faith and not by sight. I'm thankful that's true. I'm thankful there's, there's two houses standing on a, hill, on a hilltop in Mexico now because we walk by faith and not by sight. I'm thankful there's a bunch of people in that Mexican community now looking at those houses thinking, man, what would cause somebody to do that? What caused all those incredibly pale people to come down here and get sunburned to a crisp, get sick? You know, half of these people you could tell hadn't been out of air conditioning for more than five minutes, maybe in their life, right? We were struggling. It was hard. 
But guess what? People were watching that. It wasn't air-conditioned on the road to Calvary either. Jesus was sweating during his selfless sacrifice. And all we were doing was a, a, a minor reflection of his sacrifice and his humble, loving nature. And I want to do more of that every day. I want to wait for a mission trip once a year. Don't you dare think that way. We're on mission every moment of every day. If you've been bought with the blood of Christ, you've been purchased for a purpose. And every single day we are on mission. Every single day we are in front of people and around people that need to know that this is real. That what Christ does in hearts is real. That this isn't just a religion. This isn't just a, a, a social, um, that, that, you know, we're all a group hallucination. That we're all, you know, we all get in here and get fuzzy together and we pump something through the air ducts to get people to have a euphoric sense of whatever. And, and that's how we're mind controlling everyone. No. Here, why, why am I here? Why am I here instead of watching the amazing lineup on uh, primetime TV on Sunday night? Why am I here right now? Because Jesus did something in me. Because he set an example that can't be denied and can't be ignored. Because his humility and love is so incredible that it makes me want to be here with other people that are acknowledging that. It makes, it makes the most enticing thing I could possibly think of to spend this couple hours of to be here with you people studying this Bible and declaring his glory with our voices raised in song. I'd rather be nowhere than here with you people celebrating the goodness of Christ and his finished work through communion. It's because of him and what he's done. Everything we will do will be in light of that. Let that be true of us more than more. That everything we do and think and say, that our motivations all the way down to the inside is a result of what he's done. Let us preach him rightly. <laughs> Not just with our words, though we need those, but also our actions. May we be a people who love like Jesus loves. May we be a people who speak with the authority that Jesus speaks with. And may we be a people who serve like Jesus serves. And may we do all these things by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of our perfect Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Father, we want to say to you that we are thankful. We are thankful that your word tells us that because we are your children, that we are like Christ. I'm thankful, Lord, when the barrage of lies and the accusations and interrogations of our enemy, whether it be external from something spiritual or it's just the lies that we've believed over, over years and years of, of being beaten down by the same false accusations and the same false identity issues. God, no matter where the, these voices come from, I'm, thank you that, I'm thankful that your word tells me that I no longer live, <laughs> but Christ lives in me. And so I get to take part in his identity. I get to be referred to as the righteousness of God, not because I've done anything to deserve it, but because your love trumps what I've done. And it brings me in to share in the beauty of reconciled relationship with you. Oh, Lord, I'm thankful for the implications of this truth. Not only does it mean that I can push back the lies of the enemy, not only does it mean that I can know who I am in, in relation to you, that I, can, that I can have a chance and a hope of being Christ-like. It's not, it's not just about how it affects me, but I'm thankful, Lord, that this has implications for the way it affects everyone I come in contact with. I, I thank you that 
because of these truths that I'm commanded to walk with the authority that Christ walked with on this earth. And yet at the very same moment, I'm called to walk with the humility that he walked with on this earth. God, help us not to favor to one side or the other on that, but help us to be people who have wisdom and authority as we walk through this life because he lives in us, because Jesus lives in us. And let us be people that walk with an undeniable and beautiful humility in every moment because Jesus lives in us. God, may we echo the sentiment of John the Baptist that in all things that we would decrease so that he may increase. That's what we need. That my identity would be unmistakable. That those that would see me would see Christ. God, I want to fade into the background and become of no consequence as Christ himself by his spirit shines forth from me. Lord, that all of my words and even the deepest motivations of my heart would be aligned with the beauty of the gospel and that everything that I do, everything that I do would bring glory to your name. Father, we repent for every place in our lives that this has not been the case for every place where we've been haughty, for every place where we've thought we were more important than someone else, for every place where we have forgotten what Christ did in regards to us. Lord, forgive us for every moment that we tend to forget what, what the implications are of the humility of Christ. The fact that Philippians tells us that his mind was that we were more important than him, that that's how he went to the cross, that that's how he laid himself down, that it had everything to do with a love-motivated humility. And that made him sacrifice everything all the way to dying a humble sinner's death upon a cross on our behalf. God, I'm thankful that that price has been paid. I'm thankful that you're not asking us to follow him in that act, but you're asking him to follow us in that, to follow him in that mindset and to follow him in that spirit, that we would be willing to do whatever is necessary to live humble lives, to be servants of all, to be people who reflect your beautiful love to everyone we come in contact with. Lord God, I thank you this is possible because of the power of your spirit and because of the grace that you've given us. We need your help. We're asking for it. We want to do this. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.